you're listening to Truth Quest with Melody and on KHEN LPFM Radio 106.9 Salida, Colorado, community supported radio. And I've got Alan Watt on the line here. And Alan is a longtime researcher into the causative forces behind major changes in historical in historical development. His Renaissance he's a Renaissance man with a background in three professions, plus having various books published in religious religions, philosophy philosophy under pseudonyms. For much of his life for his main income, he was heavily involved in mu- the music industry as a singer, songwriter, performer, involved in folk music, pop, blues, pop, rock, and even classical. Also known for his session played with some of the most well-known artists and groups. Born in Scotland, he's, he's, he watched the subtleties of politics and media as they guided the population of the UK covertly, <laughs> covertly into amalgamation. He has been warning the North American people for several years now that the same process of, of amalgamation has carried out. The reason why I keep pausing here at my printer didn't seem to print to the end of the sentence here. And so with historical documentation, he shows how cultures are created and altered by those in control, always to lead into the next pasture. Learn the true esoteric meanings of the mystery religions from one who knows. Who knows. In his latest book trilogy, Cutting Through, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, um, it, <laughs> I, can't, I lost a whole bunch of it off here, so I'm going to let you finish that off, Alan. <laughs> Are you there? Uh, yeah, they can go into cuttingthroughmatrix.com website, and I have books there for sale, and it's quite easy to punch up and see what's, what's there. I also have discs as well. Uh, they go into these uh, ancient religions and so on. Okay, great. Um, you have you also have a radio program on another network uh, nightly, uh, or at yes. least five days a week, and that's Republic Broadcasting. Yes. And yeah, it's Monday to Friday, and uh, it's 8 p.m. Central, uh, Eastern. Sorry, I'm on Eastern. Yeah. And and so. Th- and that goes, that's an hour program each uh, Monday through Friday, and it's yeah. a really it's a really great program. I've um, been following it for a year. What are you, you've been on doing that about a couple of years now? Is that right? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll just go ahead and get jump right in here and and uh, get into the meat of some, some of the things that are going on out there around us right now and. And we talked a little bit earlier about maybe talking talking some on this G20. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to kind of get into what this is all about and what it yeah. means? Yeah, it's quite. I mean, I think people who've been studying this for a long time, uh, this whole global system and the amalgamations of continents, in fact, such as the European Union, and we know, of course, they're they're already working and they've been working for some years on the, the amalgamation for the Americas uh, it goes as far back as Karl Marx who talked about this happening beginning with the EU then the Americas then he said eventually there'd be a, a far eastern Pacific Rim conglomerate as well under a global government and the reason that Karl Marx knew that is because he belonged to the very same uh, socialist type forces political forces 
that were going to make sure this happened. And of course, we always think of socialism uh, as something to do with uh, uh, democracy and working class say in what's happening and all the rest of it. But most folk don't realize that socialism has always been guided and funded by uh, an intellectual elite with the bankers behind them because it's the easiest way for the big bankers who already uh, run the books and economics and we're all economic units according to them they combine that with history and economics um, they must ensure that all loans are paid by future generations so they, they actually go into the data to do with uh, projected uh, population to pay off debts and all this kind of stuff so as far back as Karl Marx the bankers already were involved in gathering massive economic data and population trends, etc. What time this period? This is what really socialism is. It's, it's, a, it's a designed, planned society uh, where we'll be taught through science, scientific indoctrination, uh, based again on Darwinism, where we are an animal and we can be retrained to behave in a certain way, to conform along certain lines, and they can constantly, basically, uh, upgrade us just like a computer with new political correct ideas, etc until we're, we're in some happy, strange utopia where there'll be no crime and there'll be an ideal population size worldwide. Uh, all of that is part of what we call uh, international socialism. And we find the, those in, in, at the top of all the European countries and the U.S. right now um, and uh, are basically socialists. And so are many of those who, who pretend to be in the right wing as well. Alan, so we're literally yeah. a one-party global system uh, that's got masses of think tanks advising them on what to do. There's thousands of think tanks aligned with governments, and the think tanks, again, all get their funding from the same handful of foundations, such as the Rockefeller Foundation. We're being guided along a path, and the G20 meeting was just a formality, uh, a public formality, a pantomime, really, where they got together, uh, had a lot of royal show, basically, and... Um, signed documents that have been years in the making by bureaucrats and lia liaison officers. They put the stamp on it. So it's a milestone they've passed into creating the IMF up to its proper status as uh, with the World Bank to bring in the new world currency. It's just uh, we're going through a script, a, a long planned script, and the public are presented as though it's all happening due to present crisis. Nothing is further from the truth. Uh, Alan, what time period did uh, Karl Marx write? Yeah, he was did most of his writing supposedly around the 1840s, and um, so he was. And later on, of course, he even mm -hmm. was best friends with Charles Darwin. Okay. Uh, in fact, he said that Charles Darwin's theory of survival, basically of the fittest, uh, natural selection, uh, special breeding, that type of thing, uh, inferior types of humans, superior types of humans. Uh, validated Marxism. It actually validated Marxism because Marxism is based on uh, the right of the intellectual class to rule the lessers. Yeah. Now, did the environmental movement kind of get discussed in that time period too? Um, what we find is in, at that time, uh, people like Darwin and many, many others were into it's a sudden hobby, a craze amongst the, the idle rich, you might say. Uh, to study all kinds of uh, plants and animals, insects, and all this kind of stuff. And they did um, uh, have a great interest in what they call nature, 
part of it mainly is to do with understanding nature, meaning science. If they could understand how everything works, they could redesign all life, in fact. That was really part of it. But you'll find with those at the top, they're using a nature conservation um, as a scare tactic for the public. Uh, the, the threat of climate change caused by human beings is a, is a fallacy. Uh, it's been well uh, um, discredited by many scientists. But it's a must-be, I call it a must-be, from those at the top. Uh, they have think tanks that do nothing more, and, and actually foundations that do nothing more than build consensus amongst thousands of non-governmental organizations on the same topics. That's their purpose, get them all on the same topics, all on board, and they have a, a, a concerted front against uh, all the public through the media. And so we get brainwashed with the idea that we, there's too many people on the planet, we're the problem. And the Club of Rome, that is one of the big think tanks, uh, is the, are the ones who came up with the idea of climate change and that man's the enemy, we've got to reduce the population. Again, it really fits in with this socialist economic ideal utopia with a reduced population, a manageable population for a post-industrial era. And under socialism, you'll find from uh, the, some of their big speakers in the past, uh, now they're into eugenics uh, in a mighty way, they still are, uh, they said that eventually uh, people will have to come to them when they're in charge and you will have to validate your reason for living. If you are not producing and consuming for their system, why should they let you live? Is that and called I've like got some tapes of them talking about this. Yeah. Is it called like economy of scale when they're yes. talking? Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so they, they've been quite uh, adamant about this. And that is a socialist system that everyone has to... You're here to work, and you're here to work for their system. Under the guise of, uh, of working for the whole of society, you're actually working for their system. It's no different, really. It's got a new dressing, but it's the Soviet system updated for the world. Yeah. On population control, hasn't that been something that's been discussed numerous times throughout uh, history? Oh, yeah. In fact, um, in ancient Greece, they, 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 they used techniques of war. Uh, they'd actually arrange war between, wars between neighboring islands because islands could only sustain a certain population. And uh, every so often they'd have little wars and they'd kill off a certain percentage and make a profit at the same time. And they wrote about it as well as a method of uh, keeping the population down. But those islands were pretty small and pretty sparse as well, as far as vegetation went as well. So there's a different kettle of fish. But, but down through the ages, um, the ideas of Plato, uh, especially in about the 2nd century AD and the 3rd century AD, were transferred to a new school of philosophy called Neoplatonism that was based at Alexandria in Egypt. And from there, they, they combined what they knew of sciences of their time and nature and started off uh, little, literally uh, political organizations, the precursors of what we now call uh, international socialism. And many of the present um, leaders of this world movement for globalization, including Mr. Prime Minister Brown of Britain, who is a Fabian socialist, uh, believes uh, in Plato and, and the Platonic ideas, it, it's, it has a form of a fascist covering. But fascism really is socialism because Mussolini was the first fascist and he was the head for many years of the, of the Italian socialist uh, newspaper. So 
so there's no difference between fascism and socialism. It's an organized, planned society where those in charge will run a government, a heavy bureaucratic government, where every facet of life will be regulated and planned, and you'll be regulated from birth to death as to what you do, what you'll work at, even, even to what your hobbies will be basically at the end, yeah. It, that's kind of fascinating why they would want to micromanage humans down to that level mm-hmm. oh. again it, it fits different categories if you understand again that, that as I say bankers love socialism uh, I used to wonder when I was small I used to wonder why the supposed working people that seem to pay most of the taxes um, their representatives in government for labor or democracy democratic parties uh, were, were so so adamant that they wanted taxation, um, thinking it would be spread amongst the poor, etc. It never happened. And um, then I, I caught on to the fact that the bankers live on debt collection and interest on debt. So therefore, where bankers must have perpetual debt. And therefore, they love socialism. That's why they fund socialism. And you'll find that um, in Britain, in the late 1800s, when they created the precursor of the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, they, they founded a society, the Cecil Rhodes Society, and every member pretty well in that society that became the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the CFR, every founding member was a banker. And they pretty well ran a parallel government up to the present time you find most top politicians are all Council on Foreign Relations members. Uh, in Britain, it, it is called the Royal Institute for International Affairs, uh, and they have uh, branches across the whole planet now. They have one for the European, the whole of the European Union, uh, a, council, a European Council on Foreign Relations. So uh, this is a parallel government, and it's not a, it's not a conspiracy theory because uh, Professor Carl Quigley, who wrote Tragedy and Hope, um, and who was an advisor to, to the State Department for many years, um, was also the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. So he wrote about them in the Anglo-American establishment and uh, uh, Tragedy and Hope, the two main books that he wrote. And he said that they are a parallel government. They're not responsible to the public. They, they have one agenda. They work behind the scenes. They wield the true power. They're not answerable to the public and so they can get all the jobs done for integration and creating this uh, world uh, system, uh, a world government, basically. Is there any kind of law that they follow amongst themselves? Are you following what I'm saying? Are are they based upon any kind of a a structural law? Well, what they believe in is, again, it's it's a eugenics system. They truly believe... Uh, in Darwinism, number one. They believe that uh, if the the lesser types in society uh, were to outbreed the intellectual and wealthy uh, elite, um, then um, we'd bring them down. The public would bring the elite down. And that cannot happen. We'd end up in some sort of dark age, they claim. Therefore, it's their right to rule over the rest of the people and gradually bring down the populations by any means possible. Um, See, we don't realize that that a war can take many forms at the same time. They've used the culture industry, for instance, 
uh, to alter culture drastically. And so the same organization said uh, back in the early, in fact in the late 1800s, H.G. Wells talked about the necessity, and he was a member of this group, he, he talked about the necessity of creating free love to abol- in order to abolish marriage. Because he said only then uh, will governments be able to dictate right down to the individual without family members or tribal members standing in the way or standing up for the person. Therefore, you'd be defenseless when government will, will talk directly to you. You look around for help and there's no one there. That was part of it, divide and conquer. But also, they wanted to get access to children and offspring so that the state could indoctrinate the children and a parent or parents, especially with the man out of the way, uh, were less likely to, to put in what they call their contaminated values old-fashioned contaminated values into the child the state would be responsible for bringing up the is, child and is, that what, is that when they came about with a lot of the uh, organizations like boy scouts and girl scouts Camp exactly okay. absolutely yes exactly mm-hmm. that that was the reason for it in fact um julian huxley who was the the, the, um, the first ceo of the united nations unesco and that whole thing was to do with a new indoctrination of children worldwide into a new culture. Uh, he was the brother of Aldo Huxley, and by the way, they're both descended and related to Darwin. Um, uh, uh, Julian Huxley talks about that. He said um, um, that uh, uh, once the family unit was abolished, and the, it's even said the fact of being sterilized, the public. Uh, while at the same time they give them a very permissive age where they could um, play with each other as much as they wanted to but there'd be no offspring and he also said that the elite uh, could have the antidote to to that which they're giving to sterilize the public well we look what's happened since 1950s for instance with the initial inoculations that came out for so many things Uh, the male sterility in the western world um, males are down 80, but 75 to 85 percent sterile right now, according to uh, all the, the medical journals that are out today. And the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation did uh, a very good documentary on this. Uh, it's called The Disappearing Male, and I have the link on my website in, in the audio section. Um, this is no coincidence. We're, 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 when you see when you see the very very things that the top people advocated uh, in their think tanks in their, their global meetings of their day, uh, and they're all scientists, and then you see the effects happening in society, um, you have to put two and two together and say, well, things like this don't suddenly happen. Something's happened to the people. Was it the food? Was it the water? Was it the injections? But something happened, and. Um, the United Nations now, every year, gives statistics on the decline of the sperm count in the Western male, and as I say, the last one was down to about 85%. They found that only two teenage males now in 20 have what they call uh, um, um, motive cells, cells that are, have enough life to move. And even then, they only, that those two out of 20 uh, only have about uh, 10% that, that, that are workable to, to fertilize a woman. This, this is from the, the, the national statistics and the international statistics. So, and now I can see where they're probably really wanting to track that sort of thing, too. Yes, and, and the odd thing is, they never call it a crisis. 
But whenever they come out with the statistics, every year they, they quote us the statistics, they never say this is a crisis. Now, obviously they don't call it a crisis because it's planned that way. If it was outside of the control, believe you me, they would call it a crisis. <laughs> So, what do you think of those uh, vaccinations that that uh, have been funded? Uh, is it UN funding that that's involved with um, Bill Gates and them in those third world countries? Are they involved together in this? In those? Yes, the World Health Organization is is part of the United Nations, and remember, the United Nations also has a Department of Population Control. Uh, if people can't figure out that an organization that was set up to control the population of the world um, is going around the world giving out inoculations for free uh, and they can't get the hairs on the back of their neck standing up, uh, then it's too bad, you know. Because uh, you, you should never trust them. You, you can't trust anyone like that who's got a particular agenda on the one side while they want to help you on the other. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, mesh somehow. We do know that the World Health Organization sterilized, um, it actually said millions of women in India and Africa a few years back uh, by giving them out what they claimed were, were free tetanus shots, pregnant women <coughs> and, um, and pre-pregnant women. And... Uh, uh, somehow something was in it that went right to the ovaries caused massive inflammation and fibrostome caused sterilization uh, the UN eventually admitted this mm -hmm. so why on earth would you ever trust them now people in the west hear this and they'll say oh well we're okay here you know I mean we're, we're not those people over there you see those primitive people. That's that's how we think, unfortunately. Well, Planned Parenthood. That way. Planned Parenthood's uh, another form, isn't it? <laughs> but of course, the, 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 what we don't realize is that the globalists at the top are internationalists. They have no fondness for it, like even the countries they're born in. They are internationalists and they are elitists, and they see the peasants of of, of the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and uh, 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 China or India uh, in the same category. There's no difference between them. We're just the excess masses left over from an industrial age and we, we don't have the employment that we used to have. Therefore, we're, we're really um, superfluous. So when you were talking about uh, the Rhodes Foundation, do you want to get in a little bit about what they are and, and who's in, who may be members? Mm-hmm. Well, the Rhodes Foundation was supposedly set up by Cecil Rhodes uh, because he was enamored at Oxford University by a professor who was teaching that, that uh, Britain should be the, the nucleus and the British system should be the nucleus of a world society based on free trade and based on the same uh, governmental system. Now, in, that, in his day, Britain had a massive empire they already had that nucleus of a world government and in the countries of their empire they'd set up many governments uh, modeled on the British system with big bureaucracies and so on and uh, the idea was then to set up a, a, a form of world government that would appear to be distanced from the British Empire and that was called the League of Nations that came in with the World War One. And all of those in the Cecil Rhodes Foundation 
went into uh, the, the building and setting up of the League of Nations. And at the same time they set up the League of Nations, they also changed their name to uh, the Milner Society. That was Lord Milner, Lord Alfred Milner, who was a, mass, a big banker. And uh, the Cecil Rhodes Foundation joined him. Uh, Cecil Rhodes Foundation was also co-sponsored by the Rothschild family. That's in Cecil Rhodes' own will, which is publicly available you know, from the society. And they became the Royal Institute for International Affairs. So they hoped at that time that the League of Nations would be uh, the nucleus, that be, be the overlord, the front man that, would, that would, they would rule through, basically. But it didn't work so well, especially the U.S. citizenry. They didn't want it, although President Wilson actually spearheaded. He was given the task to spearhead and set up the League of Nations. But the public didn't like it. They knew they would lose sovereignty. And so World War II came along. And then, of course, they set up the United Nations during World War II. And they all signed their agreements in 45 and 46 to make it the world, a form of world government. And that's still happening. We don't realize that the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, we've been hearing all about from the G20 boys, um, are, are all parts of the United Nations. They all come under that umbrella. And so the, so the UN is now being brought up to its proper place uh, as it was designed to be uh, as a form of world government with a massive bureaucracy in it, in fact, uh, ready to deal with this. Uh, and it's going to be economic. It'll deal with all economic affairs. It'll deal with all social affairs, um, all regulations of houses, uh, areas, districts, populations, etc. It's already doing that, in fact. We don't realize that every law to do with your electrical codes, your housing codes, septic tax, whatever it is, uh, comes from the United Nations and has for the last 10 years. And the document that tells that? Oh, yes. And... Um, and there's an article published only a year ago about uh, an organization that they, that they had set up now in the U.S. and Canada with these inspectors that go out and inspect different properties, etc., to see if they're up with the present building codes, and they report directly to the United Nations. Yeah. And, and is that Agenda 21 that, that those come under the yes. umbrella? Okay. Agenda 21 falls right in line with sustainable development depopulation over a, a period of time and uh, a managed society where they want to clear everyone out of the rural areas and put them into the already overcrowded cities while that generation basically uh, lives and then dies off and they hope to have a much reduced population in the future step by step in the true Fabian tradition and uh, I must admit that it's actually working uh, it is actually working if it wasn't for massive immigration coming into Europe the U.S. and Canada, our populations would be much, much smaller. Our cities become overcrowded only because, again, under the United Nations and Agenda 21, with the cooperation of governments, governments have not been expanding cities for years. All the so-called urban sprawl was stopped years ago and planning permission was refused. Therefore, you have millions of people moving uh, every year from uh, third world countries into the first world countries into already overcrowded cities that have not expanded and uh, it gives the impression of being even more overpopulated simply because there's too many people in a small place that, that, I've run into that argument by numerous people and, and, and I've, there's a lot of people that really do think that this the world is overpopulated but I think they're kind of mimicking what they've heard 
because I don't know. Yes, that the people well, they are because most television programs you watch now uh, on nature shows or public broadcasting are nothing more than propaganda. <coughs> and um, <coughs> excuse me. And what you find is that the marketers at the top have said. Uh, that the public has to hear something at least eight times before they start to repeat it. And if you go into any show today uh, on nature shows or whatever, they'll always bring in sustainable development, sustainable development, and climate change. Until, just by speaking the propaganda, it appears to be real to the public, through repetition alone. And Lord uh, um, Bertrand Russell, who was one of the big boys for the Royal Institute for International Affairs, said that in his own books. Uh, he helped set up the system of social control through the mind, basically, and uh, culture creation. And he said we, we must bring on Madison Avenue and the advertisers and so on, those who already understand how to alter behavior and, uh, and, and get them to motivate the public along this agenda, and it will be done through masses of propaganda. And was he a member of this one of these groups or several of them? Pardon? Was Bertrand Russell a member of some of these groups? Uh, political, political groups. Mm-hmm. Like oh, yeah, he was a member, too, of the mm-hmm. Fabian Society. Okay. And then when they decided to split off into fragments and pretend they didn't know each other because they have other specialized areas that appear to even oppose each other in public, he left them and uh, he wrote mainly on philosophy and mathematics and social uh, socialism for many years after he left the Fabian Society, but in, in reality he was still working for them. It's now been disclosed that Lord Bertrand Russell and many others of those people in his era in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s were actually employed by MI5 and MI6 at hmm. the time. That's only been declassified in mainstream books now. Yeah. Interesting. Recently. And so in an, an order for a an organization to be a non-governmental organization they have to be uh, come under the uh, umbrella of agenda 21 or the UN correct yes the UN has authorized NGOs now there are millions of NGOs most of them don't get um, accredited with the UN you have to go along with all of the UN's agenda to be brought on board yeah but in so, order for so them they, to so get selective. their yeah Okay, because I guess I was understanding that, that, you know, in order for them to get their charter or whatever, they still had to come under the UN criteria. Now, whether they get picked up as a major organization under the UN would be something Well, the UN set out Agenda 21. Right, right. Yeah, and what they do as well, then the UN that controls a lot of the NGOs, not all of them, Uh uh, but they control a lot of them, they get the NGOs, uh, to work through various organizations back in their own countries. You'll find members uh, that belong to Agenda 21 for the NGOs sitting in your local councils and uh, teachers in education in local schools and things like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think they're trying to accomplish at this G20? The G20, as I say, was a formality. Um, you understand that the present economic system up to the present was designed by the same group uh, about 50 years ago uh, by John Maynard Keynes when they had the Bretton Woods Agreement and they came to the Bretton Woods Accord as they called it uh, 
and they basically um, altered the money system at that time. They did away pretty well with the gold standard. They, they had called it fractional reserve, where you only needed a little bit of gold, even though you could loan out all this paper. But John Maynard Keynes, that was a top sociologist as well, he knew that money was really a form of social control. It's always been a form of social control. That's why the bankers are really in control, the top international bankers, I should say. And he said that this is part one of an agreement. He says, he says we, the signers and the founders, will not see um, our utopia realized um, for about 50 years. So there was another part of the agreement to come. And funnily enough, I was talking about that then, uh, before, just before the G20, uh, it was announced in major newspapers in Britain, Bretton Woods Part 2, that went right along with what I just said. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the G20, uh, they've, they've talked about bringing the International Monetary Fund up to its proper status, that which it was created to do. Uh, and that is to really regulate the, the, the currencies of all countries worldwide. So the G, so this G20 was a formality really to bring that in. That was the main part of, of their agreement. The other part was to further cement the European Union with the, with, with the North American Union because uh, uh, part of this agreement is with amalgamated Americas, that right now it's U.S., Canada, Mexico, we now become amalgamated with Europe and we'll all be under the IMF. Uh, that's all part of this particular deal. And about two weeks before uh, the G20, maybe three or four weeks before the G20, uh, Mr. Harper, the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, talked about that. He said that now that we have the United uh, Americas, uh, this union, uh, the next move is to amalgamate with the European Union. Eventually, maybe in t next year or a couple of years later, we'll, we'll all amalgamate as, as Americas, Europe, with the Far Eastern Union as well, and then you're totally under global government. So, know, in other words, that's what's doing. So, in other words, you're saying that he was saying we were already the North American Union. Yeah. Oh, yes. And we had it in the newspapers in Canada. Um, about two years ago, they called it a, a massive uh, spread in the newspapers one day. They called it um, um, Fortress America. And under that title in the newspapers, uh, I think I even have the link on my website again. Um, Go ahead and give your website if you want. Yeah, cuttingthroughthematrix.com. You can find it there. They can also go into alanwattsentinel.eu for the European version. But... Uh, in there, they'll find that link for uh, Fortress America, and it's about a two-page spread where the president of the, of the U.S. and the Prime Minister of Canada uh, and the one from Mexico got together, and they talked about the amalgamation of uh, the economy, uh, the taxation system, um, bureaucratic exchange between the federal governments, literally saying that that that. Uh, it was designed so that Canadian uh, bureaucrats at the federal level and the U.S. ones could exchange places and even apply for work there, back and forth. Uh, import taxes were all to be shared. Uh, customs would all be shared. And, and intelligence uh, services would, would be integrated completely. And they said in the article that most of that had already been done under, under the Fortress America using the guise of terrorism, that it was inevitable. But they also said uh, that it was necessary uh, for us all to unite and, and uh, integrate 
and this is the excuse that I said years ago it happened uh, to compete with the European Union and China they couldn't do it alone as separate countries would have to uh, come together and compete with these big blocks in other words we've got to become a block to compete with a block that was the excuse that was given at the time does that mean that we would be uh, in, uh, utilizing a parliamentary system within our government then? Like yes, okay. absolutely. Uh, and, and strangely enough, I was reading an article just the other day there from the United States and uh, from one of the Council on Foreign Relations members in the U.S. stating that, that uh, they need a new form of, of uh, a governmental system, but you can go back to the, the free trade negotiations that were going in the late 80s for the NAFTA. Uh, free trade came first, free trade negotiations, and then uh, the NAFTA, North American Free Trade Association meeting came afterwards. But in both of those meetings, they talked about setting up a, a province or a state uh, to house the, the new um, North America's parliament. And they even discussed at the time, it was in the newspapers here, they thought that Montreal might fit the bill. Well, I, I ran into a site, and I don't know if there was any relation or not, but if you type in uh, usparliament.org or usparliament.com, yeah. they, they speak of uh, these divisions and something about super states. Yes. Yes, yeah, super state, again, it comes from super cities. There was a UN mandate. Uh, a few years ago, uh, in Canada definitely, and maybe in the States as well, I don't know, but in Canada uh, they started to uh, amalgamate all the smaller cities around the main cities into one big super city, and uh, again, they, they called it, uh, this would lead to super state status, etc., etc. So uh, everything that happens in the U.S. happens in Canada at the same time, as it does as well in Europe at the same time. It's been like that for years now. Yeah. Well, it's uh, like your council of governments in, in, in our government. Yes, and you can also look into the Summit of the Americas. That's another organization run by Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. I think Rockefeller runs um, five organizations, along with the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, for the amalgamation of the Americas through his, his foundation uh, grants, etc. And he speaks at them, too. Well, they also try to... Uh, I, I guess there was a document called Global Governance. Did you have you read that before? Oh yes, uh, there's many uh, documents out on it. In fact, they talked about uh, global governance at the G20 meeting, and that's the term they called it, global governance. Yeah. Okay, and and in that global governance, they they actually create. Well, they're, well, they're trying to bring in all the resources of the world under one roof. That's right. Yeah, and and one of them is water. And somewhere I was seeing where they were, the UN was trying to get a hold of the water here on in North America, and I haven't heard heard a finalization on that yet. But something uh, was in the works, you know, a year or two ago. Have you heard anything more on that? Yes, the the, the most of the the states uh, have negotiators to do with water. Um, see, the water eventually, in fact, all resources had to, had to be taken over eventually by specialists. And Carl Quigley went into this. He said that, that this new system that comes in, to us it will appear public-private cooperation or amalgamation, you might say. But in reality, it will be a new feudal system where the CEOs of international corporations will be the new feudal overlords. That's how it really will eventually become. 
as they amalgamate governments, banks, all, all this stuff together. But you, you, it started in Britain again back uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Uh, some M members of parliament put a bill forward uh, to start to take over the British Waterworks uh, Association for all the water supplies for the towns and cities. And the bill passed, it went through to privatize what was owned by the taxpayer, supposedly. They love to create things by the taxpayer, then, then privatize them. And uh, these same politicians then left office and became the heads of this <laughs> one corporation that then would own the entire water supply of Britain. But this, this same company um, is spreading outwards. It's in Canada, it's in other countries now too. They're into uh, gas and, and also water right now. Eventually, they'll have a particular corporation that will deal with water. One will deal with food. Right now, there's about four or five, like, Mon um, like Archer, Daniels, Midlands, that deals with uh, the food supply of the planet. Uh, they'll eventually amalgamate into one, so they'll, they'll own the entire agriculture for the planet. So everything that you need will be owned by a separate, or a seemingly separate, uh, international um Corporation, basically, that again was an idea that came from Marx, Karl Marx. Oh, well, it's all there. Now, everything, in fact, that Karl Marx wrote about is coming into play right now. That's what I understand. Um, in Russia, for instance, you had maybe one main factory that would make the shoes for the entire Russia. One factory made the toothbrushes for the entire of the Soviet Union. Uh, this is the way they're setting it up uh, under the guise of efficiency. So, I mean, what I'm seeing, some of these uh, multi. You, when you had, you know, like, you know, I had like several hundred life insurance companies or, you know, insurance companies there at some point where they'd had health and life. And now they're, you know, they got to a point down there was probably a handful. I, I think it's expanded a little somewhat again. But in the, what I see them doing, how are they talking to these companies to go along with this and fund their own demise? Are they lying to them like they are the rest of us? Um, a lot of them, you find, again, it was started in Britain when they had the corporate raiders, they called them. These are guys who went and looked at the stocks of different companies and who really owned them. And they would come in through the back door and, and start buying up uh, different stocks until they themselves would be the main shareholder. They've been at this game for an awful long time. Uh, even big companies that you thought were still family-owned uh, often had uh, did not have the controlling shares and these boys would come in uh, under different names maybe five different guys would buy up shares but they all belonged to the one boss and then they would claim that they never had the controlling shares they've been at this for an awful long time taking over uh, so whoever owns the shares basically directs the policy of uh, the company ultimately via the shareholders uh, wishes well, because what I envision them doing is, okay, you've got so many water companies out there going out there and privatizing the water around the world, mm -hmm. and but at some point in time, those will probably all be combi combined under one yes, monopolistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is the plan. The first step was to get the public to, number one, uh, uh, they put so many laws out there to try and forbid you from thinking that you own your own well, number one. Uh, but it's okay for corporations to apparently own your well and everyone else's well. That seems to be okay. That tells you there's something up here, you know, something else on the agenda. See, water and food, etc., 
uh, are all for well, they're essential to life. They've been used for warfare purposes for thousands of years. You cut off the city's water, you cut off their food supply, and you wait to starve them to death, or they will either that or they surrender and and uh, come out on their hands and knees and do everything you want. Uh, that's how it's a form of control over the public. It's all the vital things that you need to be independent must be taken away from you so that you're interdependent. This term is, again, a United Nations buzzword. You hear all the time, we're interdependent. That means that everything that you need, uh, you depend on this system to supply it to you. You cannot do it on your own. Yeah. And so, so uh, like the instance of Walmart becoming such a huge giant that it is, was... Mm-hmm probably you know pre-planned and set up and facilitated yes. by that those mm-hmm. trade groups and that sort yes that's one uh, of the many big uh, chains they set up uh, again I saw it in Europe uh, years ago before it really uh, blossomed across the states and uh, from everything I, I even saw them uh, little towns or of a few thousand people would have a few vegetable stores for instance and then would come one massive one They'd undercut everybody for maybe a year, two years, put them all out of business, and then jack all their prices up once they had no competition. The same technique's been used for years now uh, through hardware stores and everything else that you need until you've got one main supplier in your town for pretty well anything and everything. But there's no competition now. And uh, uh, in fact, the variety as well dwindles because you don't have separate salesmen coming around from little little, um, manufacturers anymore. Uh, these big companies like Walmart only buy from their open specified uh, purchasers and it's a limited stock therefore what you see in Walmart you'll see in every other major um, chain uh, there's nothing there's no difference in anything but uh, they have the, uh, the whole market sewn up and they can jack their prices up and you, you simply have to pay if you want that item and so is that what took place in Soviet Russia then uh, that's right. Soviet Russia, supposedly the state, uh, uh, technically, technically in a sense, the state um, owned everything. Technically, even in modern China, the state owns everything. You'll have people fronting for organizations, but the people, the people's army technically owns everything since the, since the, the Chinese uh, government is also the bank for all loans. Um, and they also want to cut back on all uh, sales, etc., that kind of is a system they're going to bring in worldwide, a socialist system. And we see the thing happening here, as I say, when governments now own big stocks in banks, for instance, uh, you're seeing the blending of private corporations and the, the, the economic um, guys with government, your government. And this is simply a further step into what they first called uh, public-private partnerships, the public-private partnerships is how they first introduced this idea to the public uh, from the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Um, and Prince Charles even was the first guy they brought out in Britain to announce it to the public. They got him to do that job. And uh, it's a form of fascism, as I say, when you have a public, meaning your government, uh, uh, working with big private organizations to create public policy you've got fascism, plain and simple. And fascism, as I say, is just another uh, name, as far as I'm concerned, after studying the history of it, for socialism. So it's about control and about having a a monopoly and and no 
no competitiveness as far as uh, creating any kind of product or or uh, yes. lifestyle that that uh, could be better because of innovation. <laughs> yeah, the, their intention is not to see. We're born and we're kind of raised, or we used to be raised, to think that. Uh, each individual could decide for themselves what kind of life they wanted to live, and it's not doesn't interfere with anyone else's, and 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 it's not that way under a socialist system. Under a socialist system, you must serve the world state. In fact, in, in the Council on Foreign Relations and Neurology for International Affairs, they said that eventually people will be born. Your only duty will be to serve the world state. Serve is the key word. And I thought it very interesting that Obama there brought in that term as well uh, of service, service for the youth. This is all part of the same movement uh, at, at different levels, but it's the exact same movement all going towards the same ultimate goal. Um, so, you're, so you're not really here to serve yourself anymore or to figure things out for yourself or do what you want. You're really here to serve this world-planned society. Uh, that's what they mean by that. That's also what they mean by good citizenship. But in in some respects, I also notice that technology isn't necessarily uh, not there, but it seems like it's not available to the public. Oh yeah, well really, we're kept in the dark about everything, unless it's a public announcement from the G20, and even then, they'll speak cryptically to the masses who don't understand their terminology. Uh, at the G20. The Prime Minister of Brown, and it's been in all the newspapers here, he declared, it's up on YouTube, in fact, you'll hear him saying the speech, I get the link on my site too, um, he says, uh, this is a new world order. He uses the very term, this is a new world order, and he says, we shall create chaos, uh, order out of chaos. That's, that's, the, that's their big motto, is, the, is in the Scottish Rite of Freemasons, order out of chaos. First you create the chaos, and then you, you bring them a solution that you already planned. I couldn't believe it when he, when he said that. I thought, well, it's right in the open now, but the public haven't a clue what he's really saying. And I, I, I'm finding him slipping a lot of the verbiage into our everyday language. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you were talking about, uh, in one of your interviews, about the, mo- the movie uh, The Soviet Story. Yes. Um, what impressed you most about that when you... S- looked at that uh, the first thing I think most people will realize is, is the is how much was hidden from the western world even it's still hidden really because that uh, the prime minister the president of uh, Russia Mr. Putin uh, tried to ban that movie he asked the, the economic union to ban it ban it not show it uh, because they, they still don't want us to realize how bad uh, the, the socialist system truly was with its planned mass slaughter, etc. And in the movie, you'll hear professors discuss socialism more openly and honestly for the first time as to what it really is, the planned society. One professor says whenever they take over, they pretty well automatically kill off about 30% of the populace as they restructure the society into the new type that they want, the new model that they want. But they show you such horrific uh, scenes of mass extermination, a planned extermination, a genocide of whole countries. I mean, the Ukrainians lost millions of people because Stalin 
literally, in socialism they believe in evolution. And what they said was that those people who were peasants were two or three generations behind the more advanced countries. They'd never catch up, through, even through massive indoctrination. Therefore, they'd have to eliminate them or they would contaminate those that were progressing. That's what they said. So the idea came, they would literally take all the food from the producers, because Ukrainians were massive producers of wheat and corn and so on, and they did. A massive program was launched, and they took their food from them, and the people starved to death. That was planned genocide. Much, much worse than happened in World War II uh, Germany. Millions more were killed, and I think even today, um, the official stats that come out from some sources will say 80 million were killed in the entire regime uh, from 1917 up to the present, uh, up to the 1990, but other figures put it about 160 million. But I think the, I think the Ukrainians lost well over um, 60 to 8 million people uh, and planned uh, hunger, starvation. Yeah. And all the food that they produced that was taken by the Soviets under this plan was exported to the Western countries at the same time. That's all in that uh, particular uh, video. Yeah. Now, is there a good film out on the history of the, uh, the Soviet, well, I don't want to say Sovietizing, but the, the China's version of how they uh, became communist or socialist? There's bits and pieces uh, and little um, videos you'll see. But they're mainly university sites uh, to do with uh, the cultural, they call the Cultural Revolution, that part of it in China which is interesting too but see communism was not it was not something that just took hold like fire across the world um, in the 1800s as I say there were many big well-financed organizations that, that tried to bring in a sort of world socialism then uh, eventually it blossomed into the fast route the fast route was called communism which, which Lenin said himself and Stalin that, that uh, communism was just socialism in a hurry um, but what was interesting was that big boys, again, that already were creating the cultures for the West, planning it in think tanks, international meetings like Bertrand Russell. In his own memoirs, he said he was sent over to pre-communist China to teach in the universities to set up the embryo and the thinking for the coming communism. So he was preaching communism to the Chinese to tell them how to set it up. Communist countries were all financed by the Western powers and the Western banks. These, that that is documented. Well, haven't they been kind of books. under? Haven't they kind of been under their control for a long time? I think the Chinese have never really. See, China has never known uh, true freedom. It's got a very ancient history. Uh, what you do find, if you look at their ancient history, they were the first ones to try forms of communism. Uh, socialism, fascism, etc. All the isms, they're all really just variants of the one. Um, a free enterprise, even a couple of thousand years ago they were trying all of these out. So they, had, they were even keeping their histories on how they worked. And I'm sure they've been used for re-implementation even today. But um, China's never been a country for individualism. Even today, it's, it's not really an individualistic country.